Good morning. Some of you are old enough to remember one of the greatest upsets in sports history. Maybe not many of you, but some of you. When back in the 1980 Winter Olympics, a ragtag bunch of college hockey players from the United States beat the best hockey team in the world at that time, the Soviet Union, the Russians, four to three. A victory punctuated by Al Michaels' famous closing call, do you believe in miracles? Yes, right? That's how he ended it. Now, I would not categorize this great victory as a miracle, but it was a great example of what it means to overcome, to conquer what seems impossible. This was truly a classic David versus Goliath story. Well, as we turn our attention to our message this morning, I could have titled this message on the church in Philadelphia many things. We could have called it the the faithful church. We could have called it the church of the open door. But as much as anything, this was an overcoming church. And the theme of overcoming, of, of persevering, actually permeates this entire message. This was a church that overcame by God's grace and through faith incredible obstacles under extremely difficult circumstances in carrying out the Lord's will there in the city of Philadelphia. But along with being overcomers, another distinguishing mark of this church is that it joins the church in Smyrna as the only two of the seven churches that received no rebuke from the Lord, only commendation. So I think we'll find this a very powerful and uplifting letter as we move our way through it here today. So let's read the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Jesus says, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close, because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, Jesus begins the body of this letter as he does the other seven by identifying himself, by revealing to this church something of himself. And so it's really important as we move through these letters, as we've already done, to look at the ways in which Jesus is revealing himself. Because this is in keeping with the overall theme of this book. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So first of all, we want to look at today, how is Jesus revealing himself 
to this church? Well, again, we look in verse 7 here. It says, first of all, thus says the Holy One. Thus says the Holy One. Now, the Holy One is actually a title for Jesus, as indicated by the capital H in holy and the capital O uh, that we see here in one. And so Jesus isn't just saying that he's holy, although, of course, we understand that he's infinitely holy, but he's saying that he is the Holy One, the one sent from God, Israel's Messiah. Now, this title, the Holy One, emphasizes Jesus' deity as well. It emphasizes the fact that he is God. And that's because it's the same title the Lord reveals himself with in the Old Testament. If we look at Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 14, in that verse, God reveals himself as the Holy One of Israel. And then in verse 15, again, he reveals himself as the Holy One. And so Jesus identifies himself in Revelation 3 in the same way that God revealed himself to Old Testament Israel. And then in John chapter 6 and verse 69, in answering a question from Jesus, Peter refers to him as the Holy One of God. And so in saying, thus says the Holy One here in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus reveals himself to the church in Philadelphia as God the Son, Israel's Messiah. And then he refers to himself here as the true one. Now again, Jesus is not only saying that he's true, uh, even though he's actually the embodiment of truth, but that he is the true one. He's saying, I am the true Messiah. I am the authentic one. I am the genuine one. The one who was promised in the Old Testament, Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And this would have been very meaningful to the Jewish converts there in the city of Philadelphia, of which there were some, and it would have been very revealing to the unbelieving Jews who were in Philadelphia as well. And so again, Jesus reveals himself here as the Holy One, as the True One, and then as the Sovereign One. We see that in the latter part of verse 7. Jesus says he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. Now, without going into great detail here, this pictures Jesus as the promised messianic king. I have the key of David, who holds absolute sovereign authority over eternal salvation and judgment. It is he, ultimately, who determines who will enter his kingdom and who will not. Not the synagogue of Satan. They're not the ones who determine who enter the kingdom. Not the unbelieving Jews. Not any other religious entity. But Jesus Christ himself who said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus has revealed himself as the Holy One. He's revealed himself as the True One. He's revealed himself as the Sovereign One. And then fourthly, we find here that he is the Omniscient or the all-knowing one. And we see that at the beginning of verse 8. He simply says here, I know your works. I know your works. Excuse me. Now, as Dan pointed out so well earlier in Revelation, Jesus' presence 
in and with his church is symbolized by him walking among the seven golden lampstands, which represent the seven churches. And as Jesus is present in and with his church, he is present here with us this morning in spirit. Did you give a lot of thought to that as you walked in to worship this morning? That Jesus Christ is present here with us? It's an awesome thought, isn't it? Might alter a little bit how we enter into the place and how we enter into worship, right? But not only is he present with us, he is intimately acquainted with everything that goes on in this church. That's what he means when he says, I know your works. I'm intimately acquainted with everything that is going on here. And so it raises the question, how do you think Jesus views us here at Crossview? What sort of letter would Jesus write to us? What would he say to us? Well, I don't know, of course, what Jesus would say. I'm not omniscient like he is. But I know in my six weeks here as a pastor that I can say, based on my own limited understanding, that the church here at Crossview is filled with passionate, loving, joyful servants of the Lord. I've seen it time and time and time again. I could go right down the list of ministries in this church and you find these people serving faithfully, serving joyfully, committed to truth, loving one another. You see it everywhere you go. And there's leadership here that is committed to biblical truth, praise the Lord, and that loves this flock. That much is evident in what I've observed here at Crossview. So no matter what area of this church you're serving in, your service is absolutely essential for us to function as a healthy body of Christ. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Every member, every part of the body of Christ is essential. We heard a lot about essential workers and non-essential workers you know, over the last couple of years. Well, every single member of the body of Christ is essential for the, for the effective functioning of the body of Christ. So remember that. Keep that in mind. And again, remember as well that Jesus sees it all. He knows what we do, and he even knows our motivation behind it. So that might be humbling for us a little bit as well. Well, after Jesus reveals himself here to the church in Philadelphia, he then calls their attention to something. We see here in verse 8, he says, after I know your works, he says, look. It's like he's pointing, maybe he's pointing at an open door, who knows. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close. So Jesus, who can open a door no one will close, has provided this church, the church in Philadelphia, an open door. What's he referring to by that? Well, some believe that he's referring to the door of salvation, and that would be a legitimate interpretation, that he had opened to the people in this church the door of salvation. Kind of fits in a little bit there with verse 7, where he talks about the the key of David, where he has provided them entrance into his kingdom. But I, as well as many others, lean toward a second view, which sees this open door as an open door of opportunity to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to unbelievers in that city, including perhaps, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, 
those who made up the synagogue of Satan, who were the Christ-rejecting Jews in that city. Now, I lean towards this view based upon what we see in other parts of the New Testament. For example, we look at the book of Acts, chapter 14 and verse 27. Jesus declares to his fellow church leaders there how God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. He had opened the door wide, and Paul had gone with his companions, his co-workers, to take the gospel to the Gentile world, to the known world at that time. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes that he had decided to stay in Ephesus. And it's because, he says, a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me. I'm staying here, he says, because a wide door of ministry opportunity has opened for me. And yet, notice it also says, yet many opposed me. So we can probably, almost all of us could attest to that. The Lord will open a door for us, but that doesn't mean we're not going to have any opposition, does it? Oftentimes, there will be much opposition that comes against us, even as the Lord opens a door for us. And then in Colossians 4.3, Paul asks the Colossian church for prayer that God may open a door for us for the word, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, he says, pray for us that God would open this door, that the word would go forth as we continue to preach the gospel. And so putting this all together then, we would conclude that the Lord had also opened an effectual door of opportunity for these believers in Philadelphia to take the gospel to the unbelievers in that city where many would be saved and be brought into the kingdom. And and this, by the way, is what we need to be praying for as well as a church and as individuals that Jesus, our Lord Jesus, would open for us a wide door of gospel opportunity here in Wisconsin Rapids. You know, it's one thing for us to be striving to share the gospel, and of course we should be doing that, right? But it's another thing for the Lord Jesus Christ to open a door of gospel opportunity. That's when revival comes, when that sort sort of thing happens. And so we need to pray for an open door that we would see through our individual witness and through our witness as a church that we would see a great revival here in Wisconsin Rapids. Wouldn't that be wonderful? A great harvest of souls here in our community, saved and added to the church. And not only our church, but any gospel-preaching church here in the Wisconsin Rapids area. But what's so remarkable about this Philadelphian church is that despite the opposition from the pagan people in that city and from, again, the synagogue of Satan, Jesus adds here that they had but little power. That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? This great open door had opened and yet they only had but little power. But what that means is that they were a small group in number. They weren't impressive to Uh, the eyes of the world. They didn't have some big edifice that they gathered together to worship in. They probably worshiped in a house church. And so when he says, but you had little power, it means you're small in number. You're not outwardly impressive. People don't look at you and say, wow, what a powerhouse of spiritual life that is. And yet Jesus opens for them 
a wide door of gospel opportunity. The Holy Spirit convicting people of sin and opening their hearts to the good news of Jesus Christ. But again, that is, that is so often how Jesus Christ works. Think about the areas of the world where he has opened a door for the advancement of the gospel. Think of China, for example. You know, it's estimated that there are 100 million believers in communist China in the underground church. And that, and that door, that, that gospel door has been opened for decades right under the nose of a communist dictatorship. So Jesus Christ can build his church wherever he decides to build it. Doesn't matter what the government is, doesn't matter what the opposition is. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Similar situation in Iran, but more recent. Again, it's estimated that there are 100,000 believers in Iran right now. 100,000 followers of Jesus Christ in a place where Christianity is against the law and in a place where there is not a single church building. 100,000 believers against the law, no church building. Jesus Christ is building his church there in Iran. Then we look at Ukraine, the Ukraine. What a horrific, terrible tragedy that is. We see it on the news every day. And yet, in the midst of that horrific war, Jesus has opened a door for the gospel there in the Ukraine. Faithful brothers and sisters in Christ preaching the gospel uh, despite the obvious danger, despite the fact that a bomb could fall on them or a bullet could pierce their heart at any second. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ is building his church in the midst of that horrific situation there in the Ukraine. And then, of all places, Yale University. Yale University, bastion of liberalism. Who would ever think that the Lord could build a ch his church there? But I read an article just this past week. It's called God's Not Dead at Yale. And at Yale, there is a devoted group of disciples called the Christian Union Lux. They're a small group, but they're a faithful group. They're preaching the gospel. They're seeking to make disciples that in this bastion of liberalism at Yale University. And so the Lord can open wide a door of gospel opportunity anywhere he chooses. China, Iran, Yale, Wisconsin Rapids, doesn't matter. But we need to pray, we need to seek the Lord, we need to pray for an open door of opportunity. Now this little flock had been given an open door to take the gospel to unbelievers in Philadelphia because they were faithful and overcoming in the midst of persecution. It says here in verse 8 of our passage, Jesus says that I have opened a door for you that no one can close because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So these followers of Christ there in Philadelphia, they had kept the word of the Lord despite the obstacles they faced. They remained true to the word of God. They did not allow pressure from the culture to move them away from obedience to the word of the Lord into compromise. 
And that's the same sort of commitment we need to have in the 21st century evangelical church here in America. We need to be committed to sound doctrine. We need to be committed to preaching the truth in love. We need to be committed to contending for the faith, remembering that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so they had kept the word of the Lord. They had not denied his name. And so the church in Philadelphia had remained passionately bold and faithful in the face of opposition. Now, a part of this opposition had come from what Jesus refers to in verse 9 as the synagogue of Satan. And the reason why he says that is this, that this synagogue of Satan symbolized a group of unbelieving Jews there in Philadelphia who opposed the work of the gospel and who denied the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, as they, these unbelieving Jews did in many of the Gentile cities. But incredibly, it's at least possible here that Jesus had opened the door of gospel opportunity even to these unbelieving Jews. If you look with me at verse 9, Jesus says, note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. And while this may be referring to these Jews being humbled before the church in Philadelphia, maybe at the final judgment or something, it's also possible, according to G.K. Beale, whose commentary I've referred to this week, uh, he says that this bowing down does not actually refer to humiliation, but it refers to repentance. And so this church with little power would walk through this door of opportunity, taking the gospel to these unbelieving Jews despite the persecution, despite the opposition, resulting in many of them repenting of their sin and receiving Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. So, again, whether it's the synagogue of Satan or whether it's Yale, wherever it is, Jesus is able to open a door that no one will shut. Well, the latter part of this letter involves several promises for this victorious little church. <clears throat> we're going to move through this a little more quickly. But the first of these promises we're going to look at here is the promise of protection in verse 10. Again, Jesus says, Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. As this little church endured suffering, they had obeyed or they had kept Jesus' command to endure. Notice that? A command to endure. We're commanded to persevere faithfully, like the church in Philadelphia. And so, because they had obeyed the command or kept the command to persevere, Jesus promises here to keep them from the hour of testing that was going to come on the whole world. Now, sometimes people look at this passage and they think, well, he, Jesus is talking about that he's going to take them out of this time of suffering and trial and tribulation, whether it's the end time, second coming of Christ, or a, a temporary time of testing that's coming. But this is not a promise to keep Christians from a period of suffering or persecution, or to remove them out from the possibility of it. 
That's not what Jesus is saying here. Rather, again, it is a promise to protect them within or during a time of suffering and persecution. The Greek word that is translated here, keep you from, means to keep, to guard, to sustain, to maintain, or to keep intact. And then another interesting thing is that it is the same exact Greek word used in part of Jesus' prayer for his disciples in John chapter 17 and verse 15, where Jesus prays, listen listen to these words carefully, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That is the same exact Greek word, protect them from, is the same exact Greek word used in Revelation 3.10. And so in both passages, Jesus is referring to protection in the midst of trials and persecution, not removal from it or before it ever happens. Do you see the difference there? And, and when Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.11, what persecutions I endured. So he admits here, I suffered a lot of persecution. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. So he says, I suffered a lot of persecution. I went through a lot of trials. And yet he says, the Lord rescued me from them all. He was saying that the Lord had sustained him and kept him in the midst of his trials and after a period of time had brought, them, brought him out of them. And we can look at examples in the Old Testament to help illustrate this point. If you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in the, the book of the prophet Daniel, uh, the Lord did not prevent them from being thrown into the fiery furnace, right? They definitely got thrown into that red-hot furnace, but he was there with them in the fiery furnace and actually protected them from the harm of the flames. In fact, when they came out, they didn't even smell of smoke. So again, protection within. Same with Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel went into the lion's den. He got thrown in there all night, but the Lord sent an angel to stop the mouths of the lions. And so the Lord promises the overcoming Philadelphian believers and us protection in the midst of our trials. As he is present with us, we've talked about that, as he sustains us and he takes us through these times, enabling us to persevere. And that's a very important lesson for us to remember as we continue on as the people of God here in the United States of America, because I believe, as many do, that the persecution in this church is only, in, this, in this country is only going to increase. And so we have to be ready to persevere. We have to be ready to endure. We have to be ready to trust the Lord in the midst of trials rather than uh, believing that he's just going to prevent us from being in trials. Well, what other promises do we find here? We find the promise of the Lord's return in verse 11. Here we read, Jesus says simply, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. And that's the same message he proclaims throughout the book of Revelation. In the first chapter, Revelation 1-7, it says there, Look, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. 
in his glorious return. And then in Revelation 22, verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20, three times in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says, I am coming soon. I think he's trying to get a message across to us there. I am coming soon. Are you ready for his return? Are you ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Is his return your blessed hope? Will you love his appearing? He is coming. Many believe that he is coming soon. And so our response then should echo John's there at the end of Revelation 22. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That needs to be our heart. And then we see the promise of honor here later in, the, in verse 11. He says here, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Again, the exhortation there is to, to continue to persevere, to continue to overcome so that no one takes their crown. The crown, basically, we don't have time to get into it in detail, basically symbolizes the fact that we will rule and reign with him for all eternity. And, and again, we don't have time to get into that in detail. But then in verse 12, Jesus promises eternal permanence in his kingdom. It says there, the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. Now the word conquers there is the Greek word nakeo. It means to overcome. It means to prevail. It means to get the victory. Same idea as the sports apparel company Nike. Or it's a Greek word again, nikeo. And, and, and their whole thing is victory. And of course, I'm a living, uh, living symbol or a living illustration of that here this morning. I've got my Nike shirt on. But Lenski said that the victor's place in heaven is gloriously permanent. Like a pillar, the heavenly sanctuary, he remains in ever and ever in the presence of God. And so when you think about a pillar, that's something permanent, right? And when you see these ancient ruins, you see, you see pillars standing all the time. They've, they've stood for centuries, and that's the picture that the Lord is giving us here. Eternal permanence, eternal security to those who conquer, to those who overcome, to those who prevail in this world. And so that, again, that's a wonderful promise. And then we have the promise of a new name there at the end of verse 12. Uh, Jesus continues and says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And so Jesus promises all those who overcome and endure unto the end a new identity, a new name given to us by him. And we know that when we were saved, uh, our identity changed. We became a child of God. Uh, we became a new creation in Christ. And so we belong to him. He belongs to us for all eternity. And we will spend eternity with him in the glorious new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth. And then he ends the, this letter here, Jesus says, as he ends all of the letters, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So what has the Spirit said to us here 
this morning at Crossview? Well, we've seen Jesus, the Messiah, the Holy One, the Son of God, the Lord of the church who is present with us and sees all that we do. We've seen Jesus who opens doors for us that no man can shut and who is with us and sustains us and protects us in the midst of our trials and our persecutions. And we've seen Jesus who is coming soon, possibly very soon. Many believe it could be very soon. And so we see our Lord Jesus promising that he is coming soon. So in light of all of these wonderful truths and in light of all these wonderful promises, we should be overcomers, shouldn't we? We should be walking in victory. It says in Romans chapter 8 that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we need to be more than conquerors as we live in the culture that we're living in today. Again, I think we're going to see a steady decline in our culture and a steady increase in persecution against the church. And so these things are very relevant to us here at Crossview here in 21st century America. And so let's hear what the Spirit is saying to our church here this morning in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Let's pray.